Good morning. Our call to worship this morning is from Joshua 1, verses 6 through 9. Um, The Lord is saying to Joshua, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Hello, church. Um, Today's Old Testament reading is actually New Testament. (laughs) But we're talking Old Testament people. How about that? Um, It is uh, James 2, 20 through 26. Um, But do you want to know, foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son to the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without, without works is dead. Amen. Uh, The New Testament reading is Hebrews 11, 30 through 31. Um, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish when those who did not believe when she had received with, uh, when she had received the spies with peace. Amen. We spent very, very little time on Moses. And I could spend probably uh, three to six months on Moses sermonically. So I do hope that you have uh, taken time and will continue to take time as the year unfolds to give a look in much, much, much greater detail at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There is some dry stuff in there to be sure, but it is loaded with stories and references to the time from leaving Egypt to arrival at the edge of Canaan, which is where we find ourselves when we pick up the story of Joshua. Now, Joshua's name wasn't always Joshua. It was Hoshea. And Hoshea means salvation. It was Moses who recognized, the original mentor here, who recognized God's hand upon this young man, recognized the future he might have, recognized the leadership and the talent potential of young Hoshea and changed his name to Joshua. 
which doesn't mean salvation, but something very close to it. It means the Lord saves, which we'll pick up on again more next week. Joshua is a figure who is very unusual in the story of the Exodus because he and only one other are alive from the time of Egypt to the time of occupation of the promised land. All others have perished in the desert. Joshua was one of the young men selected by Moses along with Caleb, one of 12, one from each tribe, sent to spy out the land of Canaan, to bring back samples of its produce and its goodness, and to bring a report to Israel. And for those of you who know this story, you remember the report. They go into the land, they find that it is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, The pictures in my uh, children's Bible or my uh, Bible story book when I was young showed them carrying back a uh, cluster of grapes only it was on a pole like a pig and carried between two men because it was so heavy. Each individual grape was like a grapefruit is today. Well, I can't help but be certain that that's exaggeration, but at the same time, it illustrated the bounty of the land. It was a land with beautiful produce flowing with milk and honey. And if you've been to Israel, you know that the Canaanite portion of the land truly was spectacular. It wasn't all this arid, desert-type land that surrounded parts of the Jordan. Toward the sea and towards the southern portion of Israel, it was densely uh, populated with trees and foliage and very, very beautiful and very fertile. Uh, Great farmland and and pasture land. So uh, there's a great diversity there when we speak of the types of lands. And the tribes had, uh, these, these 12 men had snuck around representing their tribes, gathered the stuff and came back to Israel. Only you remember the report. Only Joshua, only Caleb said, it is a great land and the Lord will give it to us. The others said, it is a great land, but it is crawling with giants. We were as grasshoppers before them. I will admit, when you come across a really super tall person, it's a bit intimidating. And I know men probably uh, are quick to measure that in terms of boxing length. You know, how long is the arm? And it's proportional to the body length. And so how far can... Anyway, you meet a guy who's a six foot eight... And he's got that wingspan there. Uh, it's intimidating. He can just kind of hold you out there and you'd be flailing at the, at the wind. So the Israelites felt inferior. They felt like they had no choice but to lose. And only Caleb and Joshua said, the Lord will surely give it to us. Because they understood, even as young men, that the battle belonged to the Lord. They understood that at a very early age. Joshua is the only person in the Exodus who goes up onto Sinai with Moses. He's the only one. God, when Moses is in battle and his hands are being held up, and it's famous uh, stonework statues of this in Italy, you see Aaron and Hur supporting Moses' arms. Who is leading the battle? 
Joshua. So Joshua is a tremendous figure before we ever even get to the end of Moses' life. And he becomes the heir apparent. So we're going to start our look at the biblical story in Joshua chapter 1 today. And I'm going to try to get you, at least conceptually, through 12, which means we've got about two minutes uh, a chapter, if that. I always, um, well, not always, I, I work at it, but I tend to, tend to bite off more than I can chew sometimes, or put more on my plate than I can eat, or however you want to frame that. And we're going to look at a lot of material today. Verse 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan into that land I am about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, the Hittite country to the great sea to the west, no one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Now there's a promise, isn't it? Now, if you think about who Moses was to these people and how he represented God and how God worked with him and spoke with him, and who God was to him, and the presence that Moses had um, to the people, and the presence God had with Moses. This idea of following in his footsteps in any way seems utterly intimidating. And yet God from the beginning gives Yeshua, Joshua, the Lord saves, this assurance, I will be to you as I was to Moses. I will be with you. And as Brett just read a few minutes ago, we get to this fabulous section which speaks so prophetically to us even today. And will become, if you will, kind of the prophetic theme or backbone for what will later follow in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Second Chronicles, in which the entire history of Israel from this period of occupation we'll get into with Joshua, to the end of uh, the Babylonian conquest, this period will be not just a history as recited in a history book, but will be a prophetic history that lays out the way in which God has moved and acted among his people, in which his covenant plays and is fulfilled, in which these words have great meaning. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. And the words are repeated. Be strong and very courageous. First comes the promise, then comes the law. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it, on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Third time now. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified and do not be discouraged 
For the Lord God will be with you wherever you go. Do you hear that sequence? It echoes what we've studied so far. You see, the promise precedes and supersedes the law. It comes to us before Abraham is ever a Jew. It comes to a man who lives in Ur of the Chaldees, who is willing to put action to hearing and to go to a land not known to him. To put action to hearing and to to seek, albeit at first by misguided means, to fulfill the words of the Lord, I will make of you a great nation. The promise comes, and then later through Moses, the law. And not just the Ten Commandments, but the codes and covenants, the civic and civil regulations that would govern Israel, the laws of kosher, and the laws of inheritance, and so forth, all established. The temple would have been set up and created and made. That tabernacle that was mobile, what we call the desert tabernacle. All of that would have been done already as Joshua comes to leadership. And the second, be strong and courageous, says, remember all that has been accomplished like one brick upon another. Now remember the law and all that I have given you, this sanctuary and all of its ordinances, and be careful to do everything in it. Be strong and courageous. Because I don't want you to let religion get in the way of the spirit. Be strong and courageous because while the law is important and you should observe it in every facet, I don't want you to lose sight of the essence of what I've called you to. You see, we know from our own experience, we don't even have to go to the Old Testament or the New Testament to know that sometimes ritual replaces what it is meant to point us to. That our habits of observance sometimes lose their grounding and become objects in and of themselves. Idols, if you will, of our fascination with observance. And so... From this point, he says, be strong and courageous. I want you to know that I am with you. That that's what this is about. That you will be standing in and living in the deliverance that I have promised. We're not talking about deliverance, is it Missouri? Either. We're talking about something altogether different. When we get to chapter 2, we get to the story referenced in James. James takes us from Abraham and moves as one who was the father of the Jewish nation, called by grace, one to whom a promise is given, but who acts on it. James uses Abraham as illustration and then something much later as illustration. He uses, as he refers to her, the prostitute Rahab as an illustration. 
Now, through all of the Psalms, Rahab is a symbolic name. It is a name for Egypt, or that which Israel has come out of. In this particular story, Rahab is referred to in James as a prostitute, but according to Josephus was really an innkeeper. She may have been an innkeeper prostitute. It's kind of convenient to have a place to go to do your business, isn't it? So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It plays very nicely when we look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. I think it's about 1.5. And we find the name of Rahab listed as the mother of... Well, anyway, I, I will embarrass myself if I try to quote it. But she's not far from Boaz, who's not far from Jesse, who is the father of King David. Let's put it that way. If we think of her as a prostitute, it makes the genealogy of Jesus much juicier, much more interesting, much more human. If we think of her as an innkeeper, it is nevertheless interesting how so early on a branch is grafted into the vine and what fruit that branch ends up producing. In any case, we find Joshua asking, or ordering rather, Israel to prepare itself to cross the River Jordan. They're on the east side of the River Jordan. They have been in the desert for 40 years, and it is now time to cross the Jordan River, which at times could be at flood stage, a very rapid river, a very large river. I mean, in the scale of American rivers, this thing is tiny, people. I mean, it's tiny. You go to the great Colorado and see it you know, pouring through, or the mighty Mississippi. This is a, it's a backyard stream, is what it is, you know. I mean, I don't want I don't, I don't to belabor the point, but it is, the parts of the Jordan I visited are 20 feet across, 40 feet across at the widest. It's, it's, it's not particularly deep. In many places, you would be able to cross without getting your head wet. In the deepest parts, it might be 8, 10 feet deep. It's, it's not this, it's not the Mississippi where you can find bull sharks and uh, turtles and all sorts of huge things way under the surface. It's, uh, it's something else. But at flood stage, it could be moving pretty fast, and it would have been treacherous for a group of people with their possessions to cross. And Joshua issues the command to prepare to march, prepare to be ready. And then this sort of story is inserted between that time of that command and when they actually go. Chapter 2, Joshua secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Now, that means acacia trees, by the way. It doesn't pronounce particularly well in English, but it is this area of acacia trees in the desert which grow east of the Jordan River where they are encamped. Go look over the the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute, it says quite plainly, named Rahab and stayed there. Now, sometimes don't you wish the scripture had about 20 more verses in certain places? Why this place? Probably she was an innkeeper. 
and this would have been the natural place for them to seek lodging. Um, Otherwise, it remains a great mystery. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I don't know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she had already taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalk of flax she laid out on the roof. Little parenthetical note, liar, liar, pants on fire. Apparently, though, it ends up being a good thing. So the king's men go after these uh, spies, the gate is shut, and uh, she speaks this speech to them. Verse 9. I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. Because the Lord your God is in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. It is the exact opposite of what has been said three times in chapter 1, which was, be be strong and courageous. It says here multiple times their hearts melted. They were failing for fear. Their knees were quaking at the news of who the Lord was and what he had done through the Israelites as they approached. Now, you would think they had little reconnaissance planes flying over to gather all this data. You would think they had a very sophisticated uh, sort of city network. The fact of the matter is that if you go to Israel, uh, independent or with us sometime, you will see the Jordan Valley and the hills of Moab. And right across from it is the hill which if you go far enough up it, you come to the city of Jerusalem. Jericho is literally right on the Jordan River on the west side of the Jordan River. This is not a huge geographical expanse. It is a relatively small area, and it would not have been difficult for even shepherd boys to have figured out that there was a large encampment of people across the river. So you get a flavor for the story. Well, I have to make this very short The spies enter a covenant with Rahab. She will hide them. She will maintain secrecy about hiding them. She will never tell anybody where they have gone. She tells them to go to the desert, up into the hills, and hide for three days because she knows that's how long the king will look for them. As soon as the three days have passed, they are to rejoin their people and report to Joshua. They tell her that she must tie a red cord in the outer window, which is on the wall of Jericho, of her home, and that anyone inside the home will be spared, much like the ark. 
But anybody in the streets, their own blood will be upon their heads because they have taken upon themselves not to be in the ark of safety, the house of Rahab, the prostitute. The order is given to cross Jericho. And God arranges for something very wonderful to happen. Joshua orders the priests to go ahead of the people and for them to take the Ark of the Covenant, which contains already now several reminders of God's presence and work among his people. It contains the manna jar from their years of wandering in the desert and God's provision. It contains the commandment tablets that Moses received, second set. It contains the rod of Aaron, which budded, though it was dead. And these things, in the Ark of the Covenant, the sign of God's presence among his people, goes out ahead of the people, and they are commanded to keep a long distance from it, about a thousand yards, the scripture says. And the priests are to enter, even though it's at flood stage, the Jericho, the Jordan. They're to enter the river with the ark. And as they do so, and they enter into that water, God chooses to do for Joshua what he did for Moses. And the waters on the north side of this river start piling up. They actually flood a city to the north. And the people, the entire nation, crosses the Jordan on dry ground. And they get to an encampment on the west bank of the Jordan River. There is no order to attack Jericho. Again, the priests will go before the people. And the people will march. And you remember this one from your Bible story days if you were uh, taught as a child of the scriptures. This is a popular story. We sang of it last week. or No, we didn't, in fact. We were hoping to sing of it this week, maybe next week. But you remember the little song? And Joshua fit the battle of the Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of the Jericho, and the walls came a-tumbling down. Remember that song? Well, that's the story. Seven times they march. Seven days they march. Actually, they, they blow their trumpets. They shout only at the command of Joshua. And indeed, the walls come a-tumbling down. Everyone within the city is killed except for the house of Rahab. Those are spared. And as James pointed out, they are spared because faith was accompanied by action. Belief was accompanied by doing something. When she stood with her family in that room, she stood in deliverance. Not only because she believed, but because she acted. When the walls of Jericho came down, they came down not because... The shout was so loud, they came down because in faith they had done what the Lord commanded. And the battle always belongs to the Lord.
we stand in a great deliverance. In between the story of Rahab and the fall of Jericho, there's a story worth noting, and that is the recommitment of Israel to the covenant. All of Israel is circumcised at Gilgal. Now, I bring this up because it's a big feature here in the story biblically, but because it's interesting what happened along the journey. You see, while in Egypt, Israelites had continued to distinguish themselves in this way. But once in the desert, it became either forgotten or impracticable. And so here at this place, all of Israel is reconsecrated. And this is, by the way, before the Battle of Jericho, right? They renew themselves in covenant to Abraham that God would give them a land of promise and make of them a great nation. And these children who have left Egypt or uh, who've been born in the desert between Egypt and this point in time have not been circumcised. And so flint knives are distributed and all of Israel is circumcised. Would have been a nice time for somebody to attack. They stayed at Gilgal until all of Israel was healed, the scripture says. Must have been quite a time. But this recommitting of themselves to covenant is again a commitment to something that precedes law and is something connected to promise. The deliverance that God has spoken of and God has promised. Are you hearing the themes? I think they're amazing. In the process of capturing Jericho, it was instructed that nothing of the wealth of Jericho was to be taken by any of the soldiers or any of the people. This would not be acceptable. In fact, it's hard for us to comprehend. The Bible says their cup of wrath was filled. But those not killed in the collapse of Jericho were ordered destroyed. Every man, woman, and child. Every living creature. And none of the loot was to be taken. None of the spoils were to be taken. It was to be left in a heap as a memorial to God's victory and his act. It was a man named Achan who acted unfaithfully in regard to these things. He um, is spoken of at length in chapter 7, and I won't spend a lot of time there. But he takes some things for himself, and meanwhile... Israel has gone to wage war on the next city, which is Ai. And shock of shocks, the battle is not going well. Men are dying. They're losing. They don't know where the Lord is. So they cast lots and discover that somebody has indeed done something dreadful, and the lot that is cast points to Achan. He confesses that he stole things from Jericho and buried them in his tent. 
and in judgment he and his family and all that he has is taken. They are stoned to death and buried under a great pile of stones. These are hard things to read in scripture. But important nonetheless. Because standing in deliverance means that we take seriously the guidance and the gifts, the graciousness and the call. means that we take seriously the hope of salvation we have in our God. That when he asks something, he asks for our benefit and for a reason. That he asks that in all our ways we acknowledge him and he promises to direct our paths. He asks that we take not the battle upon ourselves, but we remember daily that the battle is the Lord's. He asks not that we save ourselves, but we remember the salvation that has come to us in him. He asks that we would have trust and faith and that we would depend upon him to provide for all of our needs. He doesn't seek that we should destroy and plunder. He asks that we move forward in faith, that we take a step based upon hearing the word and receiving it, that we move our lives in a direction harmonious with the pact that he has made. He will be our God and our Savior and we will be his people. And in contemporary terms, he will write the law upon the fleshy tables of our hearts. This is what God asks. And Achan spoke against that in every way imaginable. He and his accomplices, those who knew of the presence of these things, his family, they sought to enrich themselves. They sought by secret and covert means to gain what wasn't rightfully theirs. They sought to do for themselves rather than to wait upon the Lord. Once the sin was discovered and dealt with, Israel continued to wage war on Ai. The victory was complete because, a little louder, the battle is the Lord's. Let's say that together. The battle is the Lord's. Upon the destruction of Ai, and we're out of time, I will pick up next week, uh, the end here, we find a couple of more remarkable stories. As Joshua leads the people and positions them to the beginning of being able to take the land which God has promised. To those tribes that will be stationed or the land will be given them where they are already or near to where they are occupying presently, God instructs that the women and children may stay, but all of the men of those tribes must move on and help all of the rest of the tribes conquer their territory as well. Then they may return home to their wives and their children. And they say, all that you have commanded us to do, we will do. For you are to us as Moses was to us. We will hear the word of the Lord. Today, I hope that we have heard the word of the Lord, for it comes to us, too, 
as promise. We too are called. We too get to stand in the grace of God's election. We too get to rest for the battle is the Lord's. We too must exercise faith in accompanied action, not that we should boast in any work that we might do, but that we might fulfill what it is that God calls us to do. To inherit this land that he promises. To be the great nation that he seeks. And ours will not be a land of Canaan. Ours will be the city of Zion to occupy. And so may the God who keeps watch deliver us as we stand in the deliverance of the Lord. Amen.